Hello, everyone. I am Trace Dominguez, and thank you for tuning in to Seeker Plus, where we drill down into science topics that seem big and unwieldy, but they're not. By the end of this, you're going to get it. Trust me. This week, we're going to explore everything about sleep. This is actually the second episode ever made for Seeker Plus. Sleep is a very popular topic for Seeker. We all do it. We all want to do it more. So naturally, we're fascinated. So in this rebroadcast, we're going to look into what is sleep. Like, really, what is it? We're going to look at the stages and parts of sleep, what's happening in your brain, what happens if you never sleep, and if you can really learn in your sleep, amongst a number of other things. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to go all in on sleep. So settle in, get comfy, and let's kick into it. What is sleep? Like, really? It's actually pretty easy to explain, but it's really hard to quantify, if that makes sense. Sleep is a condition of body and mind which typically recurs for several hours every night in which the nervous system is relatively inactive, the eyes are closed, the postural muscles relaxed, and consciousness practically suspended. That sounds very sciencey. In a concrete way, it's a lot more complicated. We spend 36% of our lives asleep, and it's kind of amazing that we can't really explain exactly what it's doing and what it is. Pretty much everything sleeps, but they all do it a little differently. So unihemispheric sleep is something that whales and dolphins do. It's when you have heard before that it has to swim and sleep at the same time. That's because an animal shuts down half of its brain. The other half is still going, and it's allowed to kind of still move around. It's unihemispheric, or one hemisphere of the brain is asleep. There's polyphasic sleep. There's monophasic sleep. That's kind of the regulation of the cycle of sleep. Do you sleep once a day? Do you sleep multiple times a day? Uh, And then other animals like giraffes, they only sleep two hours in a whole day. So they would sleep monophasically one time, bihemispherically, so they're always like completely asleep. And then they're only doing it for two hours though, which is pretty impressive. I kind of wish I could sleep two hours a night. Bats, on the other hand, they sleep the most at 20 hours per day which I'm sure many of us have done on some busy weekends. Uh, Even some monocellular life bacteria, they will sleep as well. But in that case, they're not measuring actual sleep patterns like in your brain. They're measuring activity versus non-activity or inactivity. So periods of high activity, that animal is obviously awake or that bacterium is obviously awake. And periods of low activity or none, they're going to assume that that monocellular life is asleep. So in humans and in many mammals, it's easy to kind of spot when sleep is happening because they monitor brain activity. So the brain produces electrical impulses that form waves. And when brain wave patterns indicate sleep, it's actually a different state of consciousness from wakefulness. You can actually see it on an EEG or an electroencephalogram, something they put on top of your head and it reads your brain waves. The brain is actually doing something completely different during sleep. It's almost described in some of the research as if you have two brains. As you're falling asleep, you're moving from consciousness into unconsciousness. So in a very concrete way, it's called a hypnagogic state or that middle ground. And what's happening is your brain is handing off different things to kind of this second subbrain. So it's giving away executive function and control from one side of your brain or one part of your brain to another. And when it's doing that, sometimes, you know, it drops the ball a little bit. That causes you to twitch while you're falling asleep, which is pretty cool. I get this all the time. Sometimes you'll even wake up. It's uh, called the exploding head syndrome. It's something that happens as you fall asleep, which they also think is related to kind of this handoff where your ears kind of hear this huge explosion sound 
or this weird rushing sound. It's, it's neat, it happens to more people than you would think. There's something to point out though, when it comes to sleep, especially with humans, is medically induced sleep. Sedation is not considered sleep because the EEG patterns are different. The brain waves, remember, are very specific. So comas are not considered sleep. You aren't conscious, but you're not asleep. Sleep is very specific. So if you took a sleeping pill to help you go to sleep, what's actually happening is you're being sedated and then your brain will hopefully, cross your fingers, go into sleep during that sedation. If it doesn't happen, you'll end up waking up and you'll not feel like you slept at all, but you will have been sedated for eight hours. So when you have surgery, you could be under for hours and what happens is your brain knows it's not been asleep. So you get what's called REM debt or R-E-M, rapid or random eye movement debt, D-E-B-T, like you have to pay it back. That happens because your brain knows it hasn't been asleep. And it does have health consequences because you're supposed to have so many hours of REM sleep every day. It's very important for your brain to kind of regenerate during those REM sleep hours. So when you don't have that, you have to pay it back. So you might wake up from surgery and actually be pretty tired. Those sedations don't allow the brain to go through the natural sleep process. So what is sleep? As we understand it, sleep is a period where your brain acts differently and your body is in a state of unconsciousness. It can be woken up out of that and it can be helpful for your body to be in that state and you have to do it every day. And you're gonna do it roughly 36% of your whole life. So it's kind of amazing that we don't understand everything about something that you're doing for that much time. I mean, if you do the math, like let's say you're in a 60-year marriage, how much is 36% of that, you know? That's like 20 years, 21.6 years of a 60-year anniversary. Remember, 21.6 of the years they've been asleep, so isn't it really their 39th year anniversary? Anyway, so what sleep is is pretty easy to define, but really when it comes to sleep, the question isn't what is sleep, but rather why can't you sleep? So why can't you sleep? The number one reason you can't sleep is electric lights, believe it or not. Maybe you believe it, because they're everywhere. Electric lights were invented not too long ago in the grand evolution of our species. And electric lights are what keeps us awake because it's simulated daylight. Before the electric light, we didn't actually have problems going to sleep in the same way. Because once the sun went down, everything got dark and we naturally started to fall into the rhythms of sleep. Once it gets dark, melatonin, which is a hormone in your brain, starts to be produced in large quantities. That melatonin starts to kick off the sleep cycle. And then you feel sleepier and you would eventually find a spot to cozy up for the night. But the electric light is actually keeping you from getting melatonin to start because your brain doesn't know the difference between the lights here and the lights in the sky. So it interrupts that process. Several types of cancer have actually been tied to electric light exposure at night, including breast and prostate cancer, as well as diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. This is just electric light exposure at night. It keeps you awake and it can cause all of these different problems, or it's been correlated, really. It can't cause the problems, but it's been correlated with these problems. A big source in the modern day is screens from cell phones, from tablets, from computers, because the screens that we're using have blue lights, and the blue light from the screen, for some reason, suppresses melatonin production even more than regular light. So if you say, we're looking at candlelight on one night, you would probably fall asleep a lot easier than if you were looking at a candle app on your phone at this, like the next night. The candlelight doesn't have as much blue light in it. 
and that blue light is suppressing your melatonin production. It might not look like it's blue, but your brain perceives that blue as part of it. Another thing that keeps people from sleeping is anxiety and stress. That's a big one. Anxiety and stress uh, are part of everyday life. Our stress hormones build throughout the day, and they actually have a cycle at night where your stress hormones will build up while you're sleeping as well, preparing for the day ahead. But anxiety and stress really come down to the fight or flight response, which is the idea that when presented with a stressor, you will either attack that stressor or confront it, or you will retreat from it or run away. Lying in bed with uh, an overactive mind teaches the body that the bed can be a stressor because during the day, you are out in the world being stressed by all sorts of things and your brain is working really hard. So when you lay down, you shouldn't be trying to work your brain too much. It's one reason why you shouldn't work in bed. This comes down to training. That's a whole other thing. Another problem people have when they can't sleep, they call it insomnia. It's a sleep disorder that usually involves not being able to fall into sleep. It's more complicated than a specific melatonin release. It mostly is a behavioral disorder. It comes back to training yourself with healthy sleep habits. To do that is not as hard as you might think. It really comes down to forming a sleep ritual. Sleep rituals are very common with sleep disorder patients. They have to make sure that people are taught how to go to sleep. Because again, the electric light has us all messed up. Forming a sleep ritual starts outside of the bedroom and then ends in the bedroom. You can't just walk into the bedroom, turn the light off, and expect your body to know now it's time for sleep because two minutes ago it wasn't. And that's not how the human body works. It's better instead to not use screens for maybe an hour before bed. Uh, allow at least an hour for a sleep ritual before bedtime. So you wanna wind down, you don't wanna look at screens, you wanna relax, you can read, you, know, you can dim the lights a little bit. All of those things are important to make your brain know that it's not daytime, it's not work time, it's not stress time, it's bedtime. Some places recommend reading, some recommend light stretching, journaling, meditating. All of these are great. Some people like to exercise before bed, kind of get physically exhausted a little bit. But every person is going to be different. You'd have to find out what works best for you for that nighttime ritual. But in the end, you can't sleep probably for a variety of reasons. But what most science would tell you is that it has to do with your sleep ritual. So if you sit down and create a sleep ritual and you stick to it, you'll be able to go to sleep pretty quickly. I used to have terrible sleep, and then I started using a sleep ritual where at the end of the night, I would you know, turn the TV off a half hour before bed if I was watching TV. I don't use my phones or my screens after that either. You know, Brush your teeth, wash your face, whatever else. Do a little exercise, and then lay in bed and read until I get tired. Usually it doesn't take that long. And as I trained myself, now I fall asleep in less than 10 minutes. I used to lay in bed for an hour just going and going in my mind. But I don't do that anymore. It's really nice. Like once you're asleep, what if you suck at sleeping? Because yeah, I can fall asleep really easy, but I suck at staying asleep. So what is ideal sleep? How should we all be sleeping? Well, to bring back that idea of monophasic sleep versus polyphasic sleep, think of humans and evolution. Before the electric light, the demon of sleep, we would have more commonly polyphasic sleeping. If you think of ancient humans, I'm not talking like before the electric light in the 1700s or biblical times or whenever you want to think about it. Think about it tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, before pre-civilization humans. They didn't have watches. They didn't necessarily know the times of day, but they did track things based on daylight and night. In the winter, there would be more night. In the spring, summer, there would be less. But 
they didn't really think of it that way. They thought of it instead as daytime and nighttime. And they would do polyphasic sleeping. So once the sun goes down, sleep starts, as I mentioned earlier. And many cultures, even up until the invention of the electric light, still practiced something called two sleeps, where you would go to sleep when it got dark because you would save money on candles. You would save money on firewood. And then you would wake up in the middle of the night and you wouldn't light a candle necessarily, unless maybe you were wealthy. You would talk to your partner if you had one or your family if you were staying with them. You would, if you had to, would light a candle maybe and read. But you would wake up in the middle of the night which many of us find that we do now. Maybe sleep for four hours and then wake up. They'd be awake for a few hours and they'd go back to sleep and they'd wake up when it was daylight. That's two sleeps or polyphasic sleeping. There are modern versions of that where you sleep for small amounts throughout the day and then sleep very little at night. Some Silicon Valley types really enjoy that where you would sleep for 20 minutes at three o'clock, sleep for 20 minutes at seven o'clock and then sleep for three hours from midnight to 3 a.m. and then wake up and sleep again at 10 a.m. and 3 3 p.m. and so on. Just sleep throughout the day. Not all of our jobs allow for that. But sleep works in chunks. So polyphasic sleeping works because sleep comes in a very predictable cycle. It's called the sleep cycle. It has four different stages. First stage is the transition from wakefulness to a light sleep. This is after you've laid down and turned the lights off and closed your eyes. In five to 10 minutes, the electrical signals pulsing through your brain form what's called a theta wave. It's a type of brain wave. Once the theta waves start to show up, It's the end of sleep stage one and into sleep stage two. Sleep stage two is when the brain produces rapid bursts of activity called sleep spindles. They're called that because they're little spikes on the EEG. And the heart rate slows down and the body temperature starts to drop, which is why it's good to sleep in a cooler bedroom rather than a warmer bedroom. The average temperature they recommend for sleep is around 70 degrees or less. Not too much less, but around there, 21 degrees Celsius. So at the end of two, your body temperature starts to drop down, and then you get into sleep stage three. Sleep stage three is slow-wave sleep or delta sleep. This is when your brain waves form delta waves. This lasts for about an hour. Brain activity comes in the form of those delta waves, and people aren't normally responsive in this sleep cycle. This is when you try and wake up your friend, and they don't respond, and they have abnormal sleep behaviors like bedwetting, sleepwalking, This all happens during stage three. There's also something, I was just talking to a friend about sexomnia, which happens, which is the idea that people try and have sex in their sleep. There's sleep disorders where you eat in your sleep, where you talk in your sleep. That's all stage three. It's a pretty big stage. And then four, REM sleep. Everybody's favorite, probably the most famous of all of the sleep stages. This is the one where your eyes move really fast. They're showing it in movies all the time. And this is when your dreams are happening. And then the end of four, it doesn't just stay four until you wake up. It slowly transitions out of four and back into two, where you have those sleep spindles again, and your body temperature's low, and then you get back into three again. The longer you're asleep, the more of these cycles will happen. The benefits of sleep in this part, during the deepest stages of sleep, the body is not just dreaming and hanging out. It's repairing your muscle tissues, It's regrowing those tissues. If you say how to work out today, this is where your body takes nutrients from around your body that's been stored, fat, and it builds those muscles up. It repairs those bones. It heals your body when it's hurt. It also strengthens the immune system, builds new antibodies, and attacks invaders. It's why when you're sick with a virus, which you can't cure particularly easily with medicine, the doctor recommends rest 
because it allows your body to attack that invader. The glymphatic system is highly active during sleep. The glymphatic system is, uh, clears away toxins in the brain. It's a pretty cool system. It uses the same uh, pathways that are used by other systems, but it comes in and it clears out trash inside of your brain. It clears away toxins, and it's been thought of that the glymphatic system might influence future Alzheimer's disease and other neurological disorders. If you bar the glymphatic system from doing its job, it will negatively affect you later. Also during sleep is my favorite part, the most interesting part to me, is when your brain goes through its day and it throws out things that it doesn't need. So it keeps things in kind of long and short-term memory, right? When you go to sleep, your brain goes through the memories of your day and decides what's important, and it consolidates them, sort of like defragging your brain. And it stores the ones that are important, and it gets rid of the ones it doesn't need. So all of these things sound pretty important. When it comes to sleep, it seems like you want to do all of these things, right? You want your memories. You want to dream. You want to build your immune system and regrow your tissues. And, you know, you want all of this stuff. And yet, for some reason, we're super obsessed with not sleeping. I mean, why do we sleep? We don't even know. We just know that it happens, and we know that it does these things, but could we do these things without sleep? That's the real question that you have to get to at this point, right? Could we live without sleep? I mean, the simple answer is no. <laughs> we can't, at least with current technology, live without sleep. There are no alternatives to sleep. As I mentioned earlier, everything sleeps. And since humans can't just switch off half their brain in a unihemispheric way, you can't just decide not to sleep. Polyphasic sleep, or sleeping more than twice in a day, biphasic sleep, sleeping twice, or monophasic sleep are all fine, but you have to do one of them. Your body will require you to do so. There is a question of whether or not other animals sleep. There are some animals that we know of that don't. Amphibians don't really sleep. It comes down to activity versus inactivity. Bullfrogs respond to shocking tests during periods of inactivity, the same as if they were awake. So science isn't determined whether or not they're actually sleeping. They don't think they are, but they might be. Fish and dolphins don't really sleep, but that's kind of a cheat because they have that unihemispheric sleep. They're only sleeping with half their brain at a time so they can keep swimming around or you know, kind of be half awake, I guess, and half asleep, so they don't really count that. But they also, you'll come across some resources that'll say dolphins and fish don't sleep when really they're just half asleep. The thing is, there's also hibernation, which is a confusing thing when it comes to sleep because hibernation is and isn't sleep. Hibernating animals aren't gonna just wake up if you go and, and shake them. Hibernating animals actually go through physiological changes that get them into a state of hibernation. Sleeping animals, we don't change physiologically when we go to sleep, right? When you lay down for the night, you don't wake up a different person or you don't become a different person. Your body behaves differently but you're not physically or chemically changing too much. Hibernating animals are using this stored energy to get into a physiological state that is different from their non-hibernating state. For example, an arctic ground squirrel's body, their temperature during hibernation gets so low that the neurons in its brain are actually incapable of firing. That's way deeper than sleep. If you do wake up a hibernating animal, like if by cutting down trees or you know some dangerous thing where that animal now has to decide what it wants to do. If it wakes up, it may never go into that hibernating state again during that season. So say it just went down to hibernation a month ago. If you wake it up and it was supposed to be there six months, that animal is probably gonna die. 
because it can't get into the same hibernative state again. Bears don't actually hibernate fully. A lot of bears, like polar bears, they don't hibernate at all. They just sleep normally. But some bears will hibernate, but it's really more of a partial hibernative state because they are still somewhat conscious, which is pretty interesting. When it comes to not sleeping, why would you want to? I mean, remember all the benefits that we had from sleep? You got REM sleep, which helps you dream. You can build your tissues. You can regenerate yourself. You can get a better immune system. If you don't sleep, can you die? Yeah, sorta. The world record for sleep deprivation is 264 hours of wakefulness. That's 11 days without sleep. Personal record, 40. I think I'm doing okay. Road trip. If you try and stay awake, the brain is gonna go through what's called microsleeps. It will actually force you to sleep. Kind of like a phone with low battery that you keep turning off and turning it back on. You switch it on for a second and then it turns itself off. The phone isn't really working, but it's there for a minute. The sleep is sort of like that with microsleep. It's forcing you to sleep, but if you shook the person, they would respond. University of Chicago has lab technicians and they kept mice awake in their sleep lab for two weeks. The mice died of hypermetabolism. Their metabolism got so bad that they couldn't process energy and they died. There's also a disease called fatal familial insomnia, which is the only real example that we have of humans not sleeping and then dying. 200 families in the world have FFI, or fatal familial insomnia is hard to say. And what happens is eventually they develop this, usually in middle age, and then after six to 30 months where they have not slept at all, their organs fail. It's genetic disorder, it's terrible. It's related to mad cow. So that world record for the lack of sleep, that's insane. 264 hours of wakefulness, that's crazy. Don't even try it. The kid who did it had a lot of different problems with regulating their sleep schedule after that competition. It's pretty dangerous, actually. Lack of sleep also causes all sorts of problems with your body. So if you don't sleep or you force yourself not to sleep, sleep deprivation is huge problems for health in terms of hypertension, obesity, problems with stress, problems managing your body, and also getting sick easier and having problems with your, not sure if you paid attention enough to know, immune system because it doesn't regenerate itself and you don't heal as quickly because you're not sleeping and allowing your body to heal. All of those things are important with sleep, and if you don't do it, you don't get those benefits. You can't just make them up somewhere else. Another thing that I would like to point out is you cannot catch up on sleep. If you don't sleep for three days, you don't just get to sleep for three days worth of sleep at the end of that and have made up all of the difference. Your body is a cycle-based system, not a mechanical system. So if you don't sleep for three days, you don't catch up on sleep later. It's not how it works. It's like saying I can eat a cheeseburger every day for a year and then not eat cheeseburgers for a year and it'll be, it'll be a wash. That's not how the human body works. At the end of all this, what do we get? If we know what sleep is, it's a resting state that recharges your body. We know why we have to do it because if we don't, things go badly for us. We have a poor immune system, poor functioning in general. We don't put a lot of effort into sleep. We want to stop doing it, but we shouldn't. So what about other stuff around sleep? What's like the future of sleep? You know, where are we going to go with sleep in the future? Well, the future of sleep has always been talked about as like, you're going to learn in your sleep. That was something that was popular when I was a kid. You play a tape while you're asleep, and you will learn the things on that tape, right? We've all heard of this before. You can learn foreign languages in your sleep. Just play that, and you'll learn, and your brain will pick them up. Sorry to say that's not entirely true. Your brain isn't actually conscious while you're asleep. Remember, it's a different brain from the brain you're awake with, but... That being said, it can consolidate memory. 
So when you do that, learning during the day and then playing, say, a foreign language tape at night, learning that foreign language during the day, you will do better in that foreign language, but it can't teach you the foreign language while you're asleep. You have to already have learned that stuff. This is just going to help reinforce it. They did this test where they gave people a 90-minute nap after they practiced learning a simple tune on like a, I don't know if it was on a keyboard or some musical instrument, whatever it was, but it was played while they slept. And if it was played to them while they slept after they learned it before the nap, they could play it 4% more often than if the melody was not played while they slept. That's in Nature Neuroscience. 4% doesn't sound like a huge amount, because it's not, but 4% is better than 0%, so if all you want to do is learn a foreign language, then get a foreign language tape and maybe find a way to play it to yourself when you sleep. It will help you learn better, but it won't let you learn for you. Verbal cues presented during non-REM sleep, this is a study in cerebral cortex, found that foreign vocabulary could be recalled better and was able to be learned without impairing the, what they called, consolidation process or the memory consolidation process while they sleep. They actually monitored people's brains and found that they weren't messing up the process of sleeping by doing so. So you can still sleep and learn sort of at the same time, but you kind of have to pre-learn first. Science fiction wants us to have cryosleep, hypersleep. I would love this. I want some cryosleep. Go to another planet or you know another galaxy. Cryosleep is the best. It's not, it's not gonna work. Guys. They've done experimental work with cryosleep and hypersleep for a long time. They study it to try and find out if we can put humans into what would essentially be a hibernative state, which, if you were paying attention earlier, is a completely different physiology than sleep. When you think of it as a sleeping setup, that's not really how it works. So unfortunately, we can't go into cryosleep with current knowledge or hypersleep. But the closest thing we have is called therapeutic hypothermia. Therapeutic hypothermia, you've probably heard about. It's when you know a kid falls through the ice in a lake and then an hour later is fished out and is fine, has no brain damage. That is crazy, but possible to induce in a medical setting. It's called induced hypothermia, and that is usually used to avoid heart attacks, to avoid brain damage, and to slow the body processes down and give more time to find a way to save the person. It's not for sleep, but to prevent dying. That's the closest we've got to cryo-sleeping. What happens is they cool down the core parts of the body, and that cooling, they also pump in a chemical into your blood vessels that cools the entire body equally, and then once it's cooled, all of your cells move more slowly. The longest known person to survive hypothermia being induced in medicine was in Sweden, it was a person who was known to have been in induced hypothermia for 40 minutes. They actually had a skiing accident that lowered their body temperature significantly. They asphyxiated and they were in the ice for 40 minutes and then kept in hypothermia for another 40 minutes until they were rewarmed. Pretty incredible stuff, actually. To put people into an easily reversible induced hypothermic sleep, like say in a science fiction situation like on the Nostromo or something, that's nothing that we can do now. There may be something in the future when we learn more about sleep, since obviously we don't know that much about it, but inducing a coma, sedation, all of those things, those are not actually sleep. So you can't just put somebody in a coma, send them to another star and have them wake up and be okay. They weren't sleeping during that time. People age normally also, which would be bad. People age normally during sleep. Something else that from science fiction that I would love in the future of sleep is dreams. Dreams are fascinating from a scientific perspective. 
They're completely subjective experience. There's no way for you to experience my dream. I can only describe it to you. And I can't remember my dreams particularly easily either on a personal level. Some people have very vivid, very easily remembered dreams. I don't, which brings me to recording those dreams. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could record our dreams? I mean, the problem is we can't read your mind. So we don't know what's going on in there. We know there's activity. The eyes are moving, the brain is active, but all we can do is reconstruct images based on trained images. Computers don't understand how the brain works yet. So we can scan a brain with a functional magnetic resonance imager. It tells where the blood is flowing in your brain. Then it can reconstruct images based on things that it's seen you look at also in an fMRI machine. So if I show you a picture of a lemon while you're sitting in an fMRI and it scans where your blood flows when you see that lemon, if you dream about a lemon, maybe your blood would flow in that same way. That's the best we got. Two years ago, scientists in Japan reconstructed images from brain scans of dreaming people, and they turned them into short films, which you can find online. It's really, really amazing. They used an fMRI, and they made predictions using a learning algorithm. So your brain can't really be plugged into a computer, but as long as we're training the computer to know what you're looking at, then it can sort of pick it up. The problem with the future of sleep is that all we're trying to do in the future of sleep is get rid of it instead of embrace it. We kind of look down on sleep. Sleep was thought of as something that people did when they couldn't stay awake. It was almost like a weakness. But in real life, in reality, and scientifically, hopefully that you now know, sleep is extremely important to having a healthy and balanced life. Plus, it's amazing. It feels so great to sleep. So hopefully after this, you now understand sleep a lot more. I know I do after researching all of this, and I've been covering it for a long time on DNews, and still, I found that I was learning new things just putting this together, because sleep is one of those things that is a universal tie-in. Everybody has to do it, and yet we all sort of ignore it or pretend like it's something we can live without. So hopefully after all this, you understand a lot more about your sleep patterns and what sleep really is. I know I do after researching all this and listening to it again. Sleep is universal. And even though we all have to do it, we still sort of ignore it or push it aside. So maybe let's decide not to do that anymore. What do you think? Thanks so much for hanging out with me on Seeker Plus. You can find more Seeker on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram by looking for Seeker. You can find me in all those places by looking for Trace Dominguez. We hope you loved this episode. And if you did, please leave us a rating and share us with your friends. This episode was written by me, Trace Dominguez. And thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week for more science that won't be as sleepy, but like this episode, will still be stimulating. We'll see you then. <laughs>